You're listening to Further Faster in association with Montaigne, the podcast that asks ultra-athletes, mountaineers, and explorers the why and the how. Hello and welcome to Further Faster in association with Montaigne. My name is Daniel Nielsen and today we're talking to Dr. Melanie Windridge. So she describes herself as a speaker and a writer with a taste for adventure, but mainly she's a plasma physicist working in fusion energy. She's pretty smart. She's also got a healthy obsession with the Northern Lights, leading her to write the groundbreaking book, Aurora in Search of the Northern Lights. And she's got a blog called Science at Extremes. And this led from her successful Everex expedition, where she took a distinctly scientific approach to climbing the mountain. In this wide-ranging conversation, we spend time discussing the importance of science on expeditions to high altitudes, and in turn, what we can learn from exploring these zones. Dr. Melanie Winridge is a fascinating, inspiring, and eloquent interviewee. We had loads of fun listening. Okay, so here I am with Dr. Melanie Winridge. Welcome to Further Faster. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Um, So I guess... You do quite a lot of stuff. You describe yourself as a physicist, a speaker, a writer, um, with a taste for taste for adventure. And I, I guess one of the things that um, is most striking is the way that you kind of blend science and a, a, a love of the outdoors. Um, and in last year, you you climbed Everest, partly I presume because you wanted to, but also because you wanted to have a look at some of the the scientific uh, facts and and kind of just look at some of the research around that and do some of your own research would that be right I got into it because I, I think, well, it was actually about 2013 mm-hmm. uh, I was involved with uh, the celebrations for the 60th anniversary of the first ascent of Everest and so this was part of I was a, I'm a member of the Alpine Club right. and so I, I was invited into it through that the Mount Everest Foundation uh, is they have some members from the Royal Geographical Society and the Alpine Club who were the, you know, the organisations who were sponsoring the original expeditions in the 1920s and 30s and mm-hmm. uh, ultimately the 50s. And um, and so they have these celebrations every year. So that's how I, I came to be on the organising committee for the celebrations for the 60th oh, anniversary. And up until that point, I'd, I'd loved the mountains, of course. Um, I've done a lot of... I started off just hiking and skiing, like hiking in, in the Lake District with my parents as a child and and then getting into skiing when I got older. So I already loved the mountains and I'd started climbing and, and that's why I joined the Alpine Club. But I didn't know much about Everest apart from the fact that it was really big and scary and people died. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I, although I felt the attraction because it's the highest point on the planet it's it's interesting mm-hmm. geographically for that reason although i felt that attraction i never really considered that it was something that i could possibly do or would even want to do okay. but being being part of this this celebration and and learning so much about it and meeting lots of inspiring interesting people sure. um who were involved with Everest and who had climbed Everest and, and family members of the first ascensionists all these kind of people i suddenly began to just get a, a more of a glimpse into the mountain and and how interesting it was for other reasons as well it's okay. it's geographically interesting it's culturally interesting and it's also scientifically interesting because i realized then that the main the main problem of everest if you like is not the climbing it's the physiological problem it's how do you keep the human body alive and functioning well enough to get to the top and get back again right 
um, you know, and get down safely. That's the problem. And so the reason it had taken them so long was this physio- physiological problem of like the last thousand feet or, or so of the, of the mountain. Right. And and so it was really science and technology that was enabling them, that enabled them to overcome that problem. Uh-huh. When, when they were better able to understand the physiology and and they knew uh, what they needed to do to get to the summit and they designed oxygen systems so that they could deliver extra oxygen to to the expedition members so they could climb with it and even little things like nutrition and dehydration and how you keep the body performing well these are really key for for climbing everest and so i suppose that appealed to the sciencey side of me right. i became fascinated so it's a bit of a long story but you know it's a long long obsession i became fascinated with with everest and these early stories and how how they climbed it and then moving that on from the first ascents, like nowadays, how does the science and technology improve performance and improve safety on the mountain? Sure. That's kind of why I went. Ultimately, I got to the point where I thought, huh, I could actually do this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not outside of the realms of my possibility. And, uh, and wouldn't it be interesting to see if my body can uh, do that? And yeah so I, so I went <laughs> and, and, and and did it i mean what were sort of the nitty gritty what when you when you were approaching it i guess from a from a scientific perspective what were the key elements that you wanted to test for i mean were you basically using yourself as kind of a human guinea pig <laughs> oh, no i wouldn't really go that far i think I did it mostly because i just like, wanted to really in the end i wanted to see the place i've read sure. so much about it and and I, I wanted to see it all for myself, and I wanted to, yeah, I, in a way, I wanted to to know whether I could get up there. I kind of thought I did. I wouldn't have gone if I didn't. Yeah. But um, but yeah, you never quite know with altitude whether or not your body can can take it. But I'd done other expeditions, of course, and I fortunately had no problems with the altitude. So I sort of suspected that I'd be okay. Um, but so I wasn't really doing any tests or experiments on myself. Mm-hmm. I was really kind of looking at the science in a in a more historical way i suppose but also looking at the science now and thinking about how i could increase my chances both my chances of surviving and my chances of getting to the top so it was and i suppose people i presume that other people who climb the mountain do that kind of thing but um i actually looked into the statistics as well i got the um the statistics from the himalayan database yeah i looked at I looked at um, like particularly where people die and why people die. So you can isolate the most dangerous parts of the mountain. Mm-hmm. And you probably won't be surprised to know that the most dangerous parts are the icefall mm-hmm. uh, and then the summit ridge. And But the, but the reason pe- people die in these regions are completely different. So in the icefall, uh, this is this... This is when the glacier goes like over a cliff and it breaks and fragments and it's this crazy um broken obstacle course if you like of ice blocks and and so it's quite dangerous to move through anyway because things are changing all the time i never saw the ice fall the same in all the six six or so times i passed through it it was always slightly different um but the danger is not just in the ice fall things do fall and collapse in the ice fall itself but there's also it's flanked by two steep rock walls One's the west shoulder of Everest and the other's the Nazi wall. Mm. And s- seracs and ice and rocks break down 
from these walls and they can fall into the ice fall. And this is, this is what happened in 2014 mm-hmm. when tragically those 16 Sherpas were killed in the ice fall. Yeah. That was um, an avalanche off the West shoulder. And um, so people are at risk when they're passing through the ice fall for all these reasons. And so most people die there from things like avalanches. So, you realise that you can't do much about that. Yeah. You have to accept that risk yeah. if you're going to climb Everest. You have to. Um, the only way you can reduce your risk there is by going through faster. Okay. Um, or they do. People do go early in the morning when it's when they say it's like more frozen and less likely to fall. But I haven't had a look at this properly. But statistically, um, accidents still do happen. Then things do fall in the night. Um, people die. In the in the early morning as well. Uh, so right. uh, anyway, ignore. Yeah, <laughs> no. Don't know enough about it, but essentially you have to take that risk if you're if you're going to climb Everest. You can't do anything about it really. Yeah. What you can do something about though is the risk later on when you're on the, on the summit ridge. Lots of deaths occur on the summit ridge, um, and of of course this is in in what they call the death zone. Yeah. It's uh, above eight thousand meters. The human body cannot survive up there for long. Mm-hmm. You're dying when you're up there. It sounds melodramatic, but yeah. it's true. Your your body is shutting down, and um, and so the key here is that you have to get up and out of the death zone as quickly as possible. And if you look at the reasons why people die up there you find that they're all related to the same thing, I believe. They're all related to exhaustion. So the, re- the main reasons are things like falls. Mm-hmm. But there are fixed groups up there now. You can clip into the fixed lines. So if you're falling now, you're doing something wrong. You're making mistakes, so you're probably exhausted. Right. Altitude sickness, people die of that. But again, the symptoms are clear uh, if, you, if you've got altitude sickness, and particularly to your teammates who you hope would be looking out for you. Yeah. Um, if you've got symptoms of altitude sickness, you shouldn't be going on. You should be going back. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you're not going back, then, again, you're probably exhausted. Um, yeah. Otherwise, just exhaustion. People just sit down and don't go anymore. Right, right. And so, so the same kind of reasons. So ultimately, if you want to reduce your risk on summit day, you need to make sure, like absolutely, that you do not allow yourself to get exhausted. So on Everest, like when people talk about Everest expeditions, they all, often talk about, you know, digging deep and and just keeping on going and against all odds, you know, just keeping on, keeping on. And I'm not sure if, if that's a really sensible thing to do because you need to have, I think you need to have your mental faculties up there. Mm-hmm. You will be tired. Absolutely, you will be tired. Yeah, but yeah. the difference between um, being tired but being alert and fully switched on and being so exhausted that you're you're not functioning well you're in a bit of a dreamlike state if you're getting to that state you have to turn around you you have to turn around that's when people start dying i think that's sort of what i found out from looking into the statistics and so before i went i really tried to cultivate the ability to turn around i never had to test it i was really lucky i don't know if i can do it but you have to be aware of the fact that if you're getting exhausted you have to go back right and and how did you personally kind of mitigate against that risk of exhaustion was it a variety you know making sure obviously that you're 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 fit and you're healthy um but also kind of concentrating on hydration and nutrition with with a kind of clear yeah things that you put into place hydration and nutrition are really really important right Uh, i'd say more important than absolute fitness because you know by that point 
you're walking really slowly anyway. Okay, don't get me wrong, fitness, <laughs> you need to be fit, but I'm not the fittest person at all. Right. I'm pretty slow going up um, in the in the early stages of the expedition, but I figure that's okay because acclimatization favors the slow anyway. Mm-hmm. So I seem to acclimatize quite well. <laughs> but uh, you need to you need to eat a lot. I eat a lot. And I sleep quite well as well. And I think eating and sleeping are, are pretty important. Um, but definitely the eating. And on Everest itself, I learned a big lesson early on. Although having said that, I, I'd learned the lesson on previous expeditions. I just sort of didn't have the confidence to, to follow it through. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I'll explain what happened. Um, we were going through the icefall. The first time I went through the icefall to Camp 1, I allowed myself to get completely exhausted like dangerously exhausted um and the the main reason for that was that we were going through the ice fall so we weren't stopping we were just trying to get through it as quickly as possible it's not there's there are no good places to stop for breaks really and so we were just keeping on going Um, but i i can't survive like that on not very much food i need to i need to eat regularly like every hour or so whereas we probably went for six seven hours without eating or drinking anything and so my body just was like slowly getting weaker and weaker and weaker to the point where I did feel like I was I was walking through in a dreamlike state just like a yeah like I was half asleep I was closing my eyes sometimes and we had fixed ropes of course but this is a dangerous place and not being alert is is not clever and not sensible and I I sort of allowed myself to be swayed by what other people were doing. I didn't want to hold people up. I didn't want to um, to stop and, and you know, drink something because it was going to affect other people. Yeah. When really I should have been thinking about what I needed to do for me. And that was a really important lesson. Unfortunately, I learned it really early on, yeah. the first yeah. time the ice fall. And so I fixed it. I made sure that if we weren't going to be stopping, I was going to have some other way of getting what I needed. So it's really simple. I just put things in my pockets. I had a 500 milliliter Nalgene, which I filled with um, like liquid food. So, you know, some kind of shake mm-hmm. um, diluted. So that was in one pocket. And then I had a, um, I just had some chocolate and things in the other. And so anytime I had to stop, because you always do, you have to wait while someone goes across a ladder in front of you or climbs an ice wall or something like that. And so whenever I just had a, a couple of minutes waiting, I would just have a sip of my my drink or maybe a square of chocolate. And that was enough to just keep me topped up. So I never hit that, you know, that that low because, as I'm sure people know, when you start falling, it's hard to pick it up again because you get weaker. So then you stop eating and, you know, it's just this vicious circle. So if you keep yourself topped up, you never get too weak to look after yourself. I think that's the most important thing. Okay. And did you see... I mean, you'd obviously had a look at the statistics. Did you see kind of people on on the mountain at the same time as you suffering from these kind of things? Were they, I mean, were, were you aware of other people maybe not doing these things quite as well? Or maybe looking into the past, looking at some of the historical um, information? Was it fairly simple things like not, not having that hydration, not having that nutrition? Yeah, I, I think that there are definitely... Um in the past well you can you can look at the numbers even as i said if you look at the statistics you can see why people are dying like falls and exhaustion and things like that but even if you do if you watch things like 
films like Everest or Into Thin Air of the famous disaster in 1996 or mm -hmm. read the and things. I think similar things were happening there in that, um, okay, there was a lot more going on. It was compounding. The weather was really bad. You know, there was a lot more going on. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but then when, when these things happen, when there's a lot going on, you are, um, you, you're, you're in a weaker position anyway. And you can only deal with things if you're alert and your mind is working. And if you allow yourself to get exhausted, then you're, you're putting yourself on the back foot. Right. Right. Um, and, and I guess in terms when you were looking at sort of the early Everest expeditions back into the sort of 20s and 30s, but also the, the 50s expeditions, were there how much of this were they aware of at the time? I mean, in, in, I guess with the, with the sort of the level of detail that we now know, were there, were there, were there kind of simple mistakes that were made or was it? Um, I'm mean, yeah, just wondering how, how, how our understanding of science has improved as we kind of move along in 1953 um there was a physiologist griffith Pugh, who made a really important contribution to the success of the 1953 expedition uh, and that's because when when the uh, the committee the mount everest committee made up of the rgs and the alpine club um when they they knew that they could make an attempt in 1953 but that the swiss were going in 1952 yeah. um, they realised that uh, Everest was opening up now. It wasn't just the British. Before, in the 1920s and 30s, it was only the British, really, that could get access uh, through India and Tibet. And, right. and, um, and so Nepal was now opened up, so other countries were getting access, and they realised that if they didn't climb the mountain soon, then it was going to be climbed uh, by others. So they realised that they needed a bit more of a professional approach, whereas in the 20s and 30s it had been you know, just climbers going out and people were quite aware of, of some of these issues. Um, particularly there was a physiologist called, um, or a chemist called Alexander Kellis on the first expedition in 1921, but unfortunately he died on the walk-in. Right. And maybe if he had survived and had, had done some of the work and the experiments that he intended to do um, you know, maybe maybe things would have been different but sure. anyway at the time they realized that they needed to be a bit more scientific about it a bit more professional about it and um so they used uh, they engaged griffith Pugh from the medical research council and he did a lot of work on physiology he'd been working throughout the war as well on um with ski teams and, and physiology so he knew uh, quite a lot about altitude and these kind of things uh, but he that that understanding really helped them even little things like how they used the oxygen because they had oxygen sets back in like the, the 20s and 30s although they were so heavy that the benefit you got from them was marginal but griffith pew did experiments with the climbers he wasn't very popular with the climbers understandably but right. make them walk up steep hills with oxygen sets on for example and make them breathe into bags so that he could measure the gases that they were um, breathing out right um, but with these experiments, he was able to calculate how much oxygen they should be breathing in, so the flow rate of the oxygen, um, because he, he needed to compensate for the weight of the sets, otherwise they weren't getting any benefit from it. Right. So it's a bit of a balance, because the more oxygen you're breathing, the more cylinders of oxygen you need to take up there, so the 
more logistically difficult it becomes. But um, at the same time, if you're not getting any benefit from the oxygen, there's no point taking it. And he realized that they actually needed to double the oxygen flow. So little things like that um, made a difference to how much, uh, to, to the climber's performance. But he also put a lot of um, store on nutrition and de- and dehydration or being hydrated. And so he even designed the rations for the climbers higher up the mountain and and told them to drink you know several liters of water when they were up in the high camps and made sure they had the stoves that would work at high altitude right. to melt snow so that they could do that whereas other expeditions um you know hadn't done that well enough so a lot of the people you see in the reports were, were really dehydrated yeah. uh, they were coming down and even the swiss when tenzing norgay was uh, on the summit ridge with Ram- raymond lambert in in 1952 they pitched a high camp above the South Col, and they didn't have any food or water. There's a story about them, like, <laughs> melt some snow in a tin over a candle so they could have <laughs> You know, they were easily dehydrated. Yeah. And, and that makes a really big difference because you, you can't perform when you're not fueled. That's right. And, and I, think, I think dehydration especially is, is, is one of the kind of the larger problems on... I mean, even we talk about hill walking or, you know... Uh, Ultra, marathon running, all, all those sort of things. I think it's nearly always hydration that seems to be one of the key problems or the the, the thing that we still haven't... You know, if, if if someone's flagging on a mountain, you give them water and it's like you're giving, <laughs> I don't know, magic juice or something, isn't it? It's, it's, it's funny, it's, isn't it? <laughs> it's funny. Although there are, um, on the other side of the, of the equation, um, I, I've been to a few medical extreme medicine conferences I, I don't know anything about like extreme ultra running or that kind of uh-huh. I've done it but i i did um hear in these conferences sometimes but if you overhydrate, then you can have a problem as well because there's something called hyponatremia which is to do with the salts in your body right. so you like over dilute the salts uh-huh. Uh-huh. in your body um and then well you die as well like you can't it's not just you can't perform it's really dangerous and so some people they found were dying on these big long races right. at, at the end when they get in and and it's because of this salt imbalance because they drunk too much water so it is it always is um a balance but i think in the mountains i think you're right generally people would drink too little uh, and also to acclimatize your body requires more water uh, so uh, yeah in the mountains when you're doing long um, expeditions i think keeping hydrated is, is definitely really important for sure and and kind of looking i guess looking from i guess specifically to do with everest looking now and and looking over the next few years are, are there any new technologies that are coming through that are helping people or, or kind of increasing that success rate even more i think that the thing with everest of course is that it's been done yeah. It's not it's not new or exciting or interesting. Like for me, it was because, as I said, I became fascinated by the mountain. And it was an absolute privilege just to to be there in the Western Coombe and on the South Col and, and to see it. You know, I didn't do it because I was trying to break any records or anything like yeah, that. Yeah. Um, and so, when it comes to things like Everest, which aren't which aren't new, you might as well do it in the most safe way possible. So, for example, you might as well use oxygen. Yes, you can do it without and two or three hundred people have done it without but it mm-hmm. reduces your success rate and it increases the chance of complications um like frostbite and even brain damage and things like that so yeah. in my mind like that's not a risk i'm prepared to take for something that's not even new uh, so 
yeah, you might as well do it as safely as possible. So yeah, yeah. new technologies that are coming out, um, yes, things can in- increase, the, the, improve the safety. Uh, they're things that climbers probably w- you know, would scorn in general because it affects the experience. It makes it more like tourism than climbing. Yeah. Things like communications, they've really Im- improved things because you can, you can plan the logistics better on the mountain, although they're still using radio, which they've used for decades. Right. Um, but the radio is better. Uh, more reliable, smaller as well. Um, the electronics have really miniaturized, yeah. and it, things are much lighter now, which which makes it safer because you're carrying less weight. Um, so communications are important, and also, of course, we've got satellite phones and things like that. So, in emergencies, uh, communications are important. So there's there's a lot more you can do there, and they're good in natural disasters as well. Communications really help. Yeah. Um, and even things like helicopter rescue. Helicopters are now flying to the south, uh, to the to the Western Coombe Camp Two, which is like six thousand three hundred meters. They're flying there regularly, maybe a couple of times a day. Wow! Um, so people don't want to be rescued, but you know, if if something were awful were to happen, helicopters are flying up there now. Um, and there are things changing in aviation. The biggest problem there is is weight. So. If the helicopter manufacturers can keep the weight down, mm-hmm. then they can potentially fly higher. And there are new manufacturing techniques now, like um, they're able to grow things like uh, metals or like wings and things in, in as single crystals. I don't know a lot about the materials wow. technology, but <laughs> yeah. I was talking to a helicopter engineer. Um, and so these these new manufacturing techniques are able to uh, to reduce the weight of of these helicopters. So. There are there are chances that in future helicopters will be able to go even higher. Although it is always tricky, you just don't get enough lift when the air is getting thinner. Right. Okay. And the engine doesn't have as much power when the air is getting thinner either. So you're you're really fighting these these two things. Um, but so yeah, there there are technologies that improve safety on on mountains such as Everest, which is really touristy. Yeah. So they do have helicopters flying in, and they do have good communications. If you're out in the wilderness, then it's uh, it's still quite hard. Right. And and what <laughs> this is a seemingly unrelated question but it's not what's your day to day? What 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 do you, I mean is is your kind of day to day work around this area or is it completely different? No, it's completely different really. Okay, okay. Um, what do you but, do? <laughs> I've noticed that there's I've noticed that there's a kind of theme in my in my life or at least in my interests. So it, it it seems kind of unrelated on the surface, but I, I think I've come to realise that it's actually quite related. Okay. I what I do, I don't actually do it every day because okay. I do other things. But my main job, I would say, is I work in fusion energy, nuclear okay. fusion, uh, which is basically the the reaction that's happening in the sun and the stars all the time creates lots of lots of heat and lots of energy, and we're trying to harness that reaction on Earth to make a clean energy source. Right, and it's it's really exciting and it's really necessary. Yeah, and, and I believe I believe that it it will happen in the, you know, by the end of the century, hopefully a lot sooner. Mm. Uh, we will have fusion power plants um, powering powering mm. our cities. So it, it's as I said, it it is really un, well, it seems really unrelated, but I think what the the link is is that it's this sense of exploration and this sense of doing something that's impossible or that people think is impossible um it's this 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 big challenge and i got into fusion 
when I was you know, a student, when I was younger, mm-hmm. I did a PhD in infusion energy. Uh, so I did a I did a an undergraduate degree in physics, and then I went on to do a PhD in infusion and energy. And I got into that because, well, I was interested in the environment and the outdoors, and of course I was worried about climate change and the energy problem as well. Like, what would we do if we weren't using fossil fuels? Um, but I really thought that if we could, if we could, if we could do fusion on Earth, then it would be, it would just be incredible. It would, it would solve our energy problems. It produces no greenhouse gases, no long-lived radioactive waste, uh-huh. abundant energy, um, high energy density, so it can be used in cities and, and areas where you've got high energy requirements. And and so it just seemed to me that that fusion was was what we needed, and I, I still believe that it, it's what we need. There are alternatives, and we we can and should use renewables and and anything else that we can. But for areas of high population density with high energy demands, you will need something like fusion. And so I got into it like for those reasons when I was younger. Um, and and as I said, it is. I think that science is an exploration. It, it's exciting. We're, we're doing something completely new and trying to do something that is almost impossible. And, and I think that's what interests me in these stories of, of Everest and you know, how, how were they able to do that. And, and even polar exploration further back, I wrote a book about the Northern Lights as well and looked into that. Aurora, so all yeah. things, they're all related, really. It's this like, notion of this notion of the impossible and exploration that, that ties them all together. Sure. And and just give me a, a, like a, a, an idiot's guide to fusion power, <laughs> fusion energy. What, what <laughs> something that I could understand. <laughs> um, it's OK. So as I said, it's, it's what's happening in the sun and the stars. Yeah. And, and what it is, is it's it's two nuclei coming together. So the centers of atoms so if you strip an atom right down, um, then you have protons and neutrons in the center and you have electrons going around the outside. Now, in fusion, it only happens in you know, very high-energy environments like the sun. Mm-hmm. And so in that place, the electrons have actually been stripped away from the center of the atom. So you just have the nuclei moving around separately. And if you squash them together, these nuclei, mm-hmm. then the protons and neutrons all rearrange themselves and make something new (laughs) and and that produces that produces energy so actually what's happening in the stars is that hydrogen is joining together to make helium which is slightly bigger and then as time goes on in the star's life cycle helium will join together to make like carbon and then oxygen and nitrogen and so all the elements in the universe sort of built up through this nucleosynthesis this fusion in stars and um and we just want to use the a very easy end of that process if right. you like. so just squashing together the smallest things so hydrogen so on, on earth we we take actually slightly built bigger building blocks we use what we call heavy hydrogen so deuterium and tritium which are just heavy types of hydrogen they have extra neutrons and we just squish these particles together and when they come together they make helium which is a safe waste product and they produce huge amounts of energy the trouble is that you only get fusion happening in conditions like the center of stars. So you have to make a kind of mini star on Earth. You have to make something that you can heat up to hundreds of millions of degrees. Yeah. 
Mm. So what you're trying to do is make stars. <laughs> stars. That's a romantic way of looking at it. Um, yeah, and then harness the energy from those stars. And and I guess looking back, so you're you you wrote a book um, Aurora in search of the Northern Lights. What the again was that a scientifically driven thing for you, or was it uh, something that was? you know, I guess a a more kind of emotional draw to something that's... It it was a mixture of both. Okay. It came came together, these two things combining. Um, It was towards the end of my PhD Mm -hmm. uh, that I I started thinking that I should see the aurora because actually, so the the work that I do in my PhD, I'm, I'm a plasma physicist, they call it, because... Um, and we're working with plasmas. So in infusion, in the centre of the sun, as I said, when the electrons are stripped away from the nucleus of the atom, that you get a plasma. So it's a really hot, electrically charged gas, right. essentially. Um, and so I was working with plasmas. I was a plasma physicist. And it turns out that the aurora is also a plasma. So what's going on up there when you see these like beautiful dancing green lights mm-hmm. is it's it's way up in the ionosphere which is hundreds about 100 kilometers up above the earth. And in the ionosphere the the atmosphere has become ionized so the electrons have been stripped away mm-hmm. and it's a plasma up there. So you're watching these sort of light being emitted by these moving uh atoms in this this plasma so it's the aurora is a plasma and so i I sort of felt like i was a plasma physicist i should see this spectacular natural plasma phenomenon so i wanted to see it anyway Mm -hmm. and and i i was also at the same time getting more interested in uh in the arctic and polar exploration i wanted to go to the arctic so it kind of came together really i was i was interested in it from the the physics point of view but i also wanted to see it and i wanted to go to the arctic and i had this crazy idea that maybe maybe i could figure out some way of like going to svalbard and skiing out there mm-hmm. um which i did in the end i uh, i went out to svalbard to to see the aurora and in the way like the old i like to think about it like this like in the way that the old polar explorers would have experienced it because back then they didn't even know what the aurora was they didn't know what was causing it and it made me it was interesting to think like what would they have felt seeing seeing this kind of crazy phenomenon and having no idea what it was yeah and into the indigenous people and what they would have thought about it and the mythology and the stories and so there's so much behind there it's a really fascinating beautiful topic that I was really privileged to explore for a few years. Brilliant, amazing. What 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 is the uh, the, the itch that you you're hoping to scratch at, at the moment? Is there anything else that's? <laughs> <laughs> there are always interesting things to do. That's the problem, isn't it? Um, I'm not doing much for the moment because I'm currently writing a book about Everest and the science of Everest. Ooh, so okay. that's sort of keeping me busy uh, at the moment. Um, so I've said I'm not allowed to. <laughs> Not allowed to plan any big. Okay. big okay. When 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 do you think? What what are the timescales on that? Oh, goodness me! I, I I keep saying I'd like to have it done by the middle of the year, but then people say they shouldn't. I shouldn't put so much pressure on myself. <laughs> Just don't mention it on a podcast or anything. Well, that sounds amazing. I okay. I don't really, but uh, there are things that I quite like to do. Um, I'd really like to ski to the North Pole, actually. Right. Um, 
but uh, it's very expensive as you know and it's been done so it's not exciting right. but i think it'd be incredible to see it while it still has ice yes i'm really sorry to say that i don't think it will still have ice for long and that's one thing that i'm working on in my fusion work i know we fusion will come too late to really stop climate change but i think we need to be making every effort that we can now yeah. to stop it and the sooner we can have fusion the less dramatic the effects of climate change will be we yeah. need it yeah. anyways no no a couple of podcasts ago we spoke to martin hartley who's a polar um photographer and who's you know has done those trips on several occasions and he's he's kind of um yeah you, you speak to him and you talk about the the kind of the sea ice that's no longer there <laughs> and, and, and he's, he's, he's really noticed the difference hasn't he in his, yeah. in his photography over the last what, 20 years or something yeah years. that's right yeah and, and and his photographs kind of hold kind of yeah i do have this kind of documentary evidence of it of it changing it's 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 so sad it's extraordinary yeah but, yeah but i would kind of like to i'd like to go out there and if i could do anything <clears throat> scientific that would be helpful then mm. i'd happily do that but uh I don't know. If, I don't know if there is anything that can be done that, that's helpful. As I said, it has. It's been done. It's it, the route has been done. Mm-hmm. Um, that's interesting. There are also solar eclipses happening all around the world, like every year. Or so, and those are incredible things to see as well. So, I would definitely go and do more travels to interesting places to see solar eclipses. Right. That sounds amazing. Sounds amazing. Um, well. Thank you so much for taking the time and speaking to us. That was uh, just, yeah, really, really fascinating and, and some, something really different for, for us. So I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for your, for your time. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Cheers. And there we go. See, told you it was interesting. A huge thank you to Dr. Melinda Windridge, such a really fascinating interviewee. And thank you to you, the listener, as well. If you enjoyed it, please go on to iTunes, leave a little review. And in the meantime, we're going to be back with Further Faster next month with another interviewee, and we're going to be looking at some pretty cold running. Listen in. <laughs>